The story you're about to hear begins at the Royal Albert Hall on January 27, 2006. 21-year-old Timothy Llewellyn from the little town of Littletown, Iowa, stood nervously in the wings of the theater, watching the audience take their seats for a commemorative performance of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's 250th birthday. This was it, his big moment, his chance to leave his old life behind and finally make something of himself. In just a few minutes, he would have a chance to play Mozart's Piano Sonata No. 11 in front of an audience of over 5,000, and he hoped beyond hope that they liked him. What would you do if you had a time machine? Would you use it for something important? Or would you use it for something a bit trivial or even a bit silly? Join us as we hear the stories of those who've traveled through time and the lessons they learned along the way. It's time for a bit of time travel. Today's episode, The Snowball Effect. Right around the time he was trying to decide whether to throw up or not, Timothy Llewellyn heard a peculiar noise behind him. He turned around and saw... Scott, what are you doing here? Scott Peterson was an old classmate from high school. As much as Scott's presence backstage at the Royal Albert Hall was peculiar, it actually wasn't the most peculiar thing he'd ever done. Scott once spent a whole year eating his food upside down in order to see if he could gain facial weight. And in high school, he skipped classes for an entire week in order to testify to the United States Congress about the benefits of government-subsidized licorice. And, oh yeah, about a year ago, he built a time machine. You can't go on that stage, Tim. Why not? Scott shoved a newspaper into his face, and Timothy's mouth fell open as he scanned the front page. There, he saw a large picture of himself, Timothy Llewellyn of Littletown, Iowa, on the very stage where he now stood, wearing the exact same clothes he now wore, and walking away from the exact same grand piano he'd soon be playing, all while a large, round snowball, frozen midair, was inches away from hitting him smack dab in the middle of the face. I don't understand. Go on, just read what it says. Timothy Llewellyn, age 21, was struck in the face by a snowball on Tuesday evening after his performance of Mozart's Piano Sonata No. 11. While the suspect's identity and whereabouts are still unknown, audience members distinctly remember hearing the culprit shout, That's for what you did! I don't understand. Is this a joke? What? No. Y you can't go out there, Tim. I I've seen the future. All everybody ends up talking about is that snowball hitting you right in the face, and it's gonna ruin your career as a concert pianist. Time to go, kid. Before he was able to ask his friend another no, question, wait. Timothy Llewellyn was shoved onto the open stage. He scanned each audience member as he made his way nervously towards the piano, searching for any trace of a snowball in their hands. He sat down on the piano bench, felt the heat of the spotlight on him, and hovered his shaky hands over the ivory keys. Was it still worth going through with this? Could he not alert somebody? That security guard messily eating a cream-filled donut in the corner, perhaps. But it was too late. The audience was waiting. The show must go on. It may have some value to explain, for those listeners who have any interest in such things, that Mozart's Piano Sonata No. 11 was written in the summer of 1783 in Salzburg, Austria. It's divided into what's known as three movements, meaning three self-contained parts. The first is called the Andante Grazioso, literally meaning slow but gracefully. And that is exactly how it needed to be played. 
Regardless of Timothy's fears at that moment, he needed to focus and surrender, to forfeit all cares and inhibitions. He knew that it wasn't enough to play each key as they appeared on the sheet. His hands were to be as graceful as swans and steady as a surgeon's. Each note had to be played with an awareness of depth, tone color, articulation, and most importantly, emotional control. His body, mind, and spirit needed to be in this very moment. And for a few seconds, it was. But if you were destined to have a snowball thrown at your face, would you be able to concentrate? No. We shouldn't look down upon Timothy Llewellyn of Littletown, Iowa for not behaving like a consummate professional at that very moment, for not giving himself over completely to his instrument, and for occasionally stealing squinted glances towards the audience. He wondered how someone could do something so terrible as to throw a snowball at him, and at a time like this. His mind recalled the words the alleged perpetrator had yelled, That's for what you did. What had he done, and to whom? For all he knew, it could have been any one of the 5,000 strangers out there. Any single one. They weren't all strangers, however. Among the obscure faces, his eyes locked onto Tony sitting in the third row. Hmm. Tony? Tony. He knew Tony quite well. They had grown up in the same neighborhood, shared the same friends, and even shared the same parents. They were brothers, you see. But surely it wasn't Tony. His own brother would never do such a thing to him. Would he? Seven thousand bucks? Mom and Dad gave you seven thousand bucks for your stupid piano school? It's called a music conservatory, Tony. And what's wrong with that? I knew it. You are Mom and Dad's favorite. Don't sound so jealous. They believe in me, in my talent. They think I'll go places. What? <laughs> and they don't think I'll go places? I mean, that's what you're saying, isn't it? <sighs> Tony, I didn't mean that. Right. Thanks a lot, bro. Tony. If only he had played that moment more slowly and gracefully, like the Andante Grazioso. He knew he should have picked his words more carefully. He knew he was only thinking about himself, about his own dreams and aspirations. He looked over at Tony again. Would he really take out his frustrations on him now? The second movement of Mozart's Piano Sonata No. 11 is the Menuetto, which is from the French word minuet, meaning a dance of small steps. As his fingers fluttered delicately along the keys, the word small steps suddenly made Timothy recollect a conversation he once had with another individual in the audience that night. Daisy, the girlfriend he had broken up with years ago. Of course. Daisy. She certainly hated me. Forecast, showers, and Look, I'll wait for you, Tim. Your time at the conservatory doesn't need to come between us. We'll make it work. We'll talk on the phone every day. I just don't know if I'll have the patience for that. You'd really wait four years for me? Yeah, we'll take it one small step at a time. Ah, I don't have time to take small steps, Daisy. I'm going places. I'm planning on taking great big leaps and bounds in this life. I just don't see how this is going to work out between us. What are you saying? I... I don't think we should see each other anymore. He knew he had hurt her. The truth was, if he hadn't gone to school, he would have married her. But it wasn't the right time given everything he wanted to accomplish in life. But was Daisy vindictive enough to throw a snowball at him? No, she wouldn't hurt a fly. She told him she would travel out here to show support as a friend, and as a friend only. But who knows? Perhaps if you're angry enough or hurt enough, anything's possible. Timothy tried to remember everyone he had ever interacted with. Was there anyone else he had hurt? 
Faces flashed through his mind, family members, church friends, work colleagues. He tried to think about every conversation he had ever had. Suspects came to mind, then quickly departed. He thought about the local grocer who he had stolen a chocolate bar from in the third grade. He thought about his babysitter whose hair he had once chopped off while she napped on the couch. And of course, he thought about Hollywood actor Nicolas Cage whose 13 movies he had illegally downloaded last summer. But none of them seemed like very plausible suspects. Upon the beginning of the third and final movement, the Ala Turka, meaning a Turkish dance, Tim was as nervous as a mime leading an auction. He knew he was now mere minutes away from being hit by a snowball. He played furiously. His fingers, tired and weary, fluttered along the keys. His brow was sweating, his neckline was damp, and his bloodshot eyes were bulging from his head from concentration, anxiety, and, according to the diagnosis of one physician in the audience, a growing stomach ulcer. Each time someone coughed or sneezed, he felt his insides turn upside down. Who could it be? Who had he angered? Why did all this feel like one giant hoax? A hoax? He remembered Scott. Licorice advocate and time traveler Scott. What if Scott faked the newspaper article? What if there never was going to be a snowball attack? What if he had made the whole thing up just to make Timothy lose concentration and embarrass himself? It was certainly possible. After all, he hadn't always been so nice to Scott. Hey, I'd like to order two Turkish kebabs, please. Hey, Tim, guess what? I built a time machine! No one cares, Scott. I'm on the phone! Tim had nearly convinced himself of this theory when he suddenly spotted movement on a balcony. There was a figure, a figure whose identity was obscured by darkness and shadows, villainously tossing an object up and down in the air. An object, from Tim's vantage point, that held an uncanny resemblance to a giant, round Italian meatball. But given the overall context of this story, we ought to assume that it was actually a snowball. Tim gasped, nearly missing his F-sharp. There they were, his fearsome foe, ready to destroy his entire future. But right when he thought all was lost, Tim saw, to his astonishment, another figure pounce on top of him. It was his time-traveling friend Scott to his rescue. Get him, Scott! Scott performed several ungraceful kung fu moves, hitting no one and seemingly pulling a leg muscle before the mysterious figure threw a forceful left hook. A slightly dazed Scott Peterson wiped his bloody brow before pulling out a long knife. Yes! Get him, Scott! Which he used to remove a price tag from a brand new pair of boxing gloves and then tossed aside. No! The two exchanged several punches, causing the mysterious figure to drop the snowball over the balcony. They wrestled back and forth until they stumbled over the railing and plunged into darkness. Timothy gasped. Was Scott okay? Would he need to alert his next of kin? These questions did not have time to enter Timothy's head at all, as to his horror, the dark figure emerged once more from the back of the concert hall by his lonesome, the snowball held firmly in their hand. At that moment, there was nothing else Timothy could do. He panicked and glanced toward the exit wings, then up towards the stage lights. There was nothing, nobody to help him escape. But quite suddenly, an idea popped into his head. An idea so crazy, quite frankly, that it can only happen within the fictional setting of, say, an audio drama. If Timothy couldn't get up from his seat, he would make sure everyone else in the theater did. He would try something that he had only tried once as a party trick in Des Moines. Taking a deep breath, he slowly raised his right hand in the air, causing the audience to gasp in confusion. It was a truly majestic moment to all who witnessed it. Timothy Llewellyn of Little Town, Iowa, was playing Mozart's Ala Turka one-handed. 
It was a moment so beautiful, so astounding, and again, completely improbable, that those sitting in the front rows all stood up to catch a closer look, forcing the rows behind them to stand on their seats and causing those even further back to hop onto the shoulders of those standing in front of them, blocking the mysterious figure's line of sight. Although brief, it was a moment that would be spoken about for years afterward. As he completed the final notes, the audience erupted into thunderous applause. Various exclamations from huzzahs to whoop de doos to encores to va were heard. But Timothy was not there to hear any of it. Timothy Llewellyn of Littletown, Iowa had already left the stage. The following morning, newspapers around the country ran headlines such as 21-year-old American astounds, Mozart rolls in his grave with delight, and climate change threatens to destroy ocean's plankton, a particularly eye-opening piece that has no relevance or bearing upon this story, but that I personally found quite interesting. Tim's one-handed performance was captured on various cell phone cameras, leading to worldwide acclaim, including the attention of top-ranking record producers, such as the great Leo Tromboski and Frederick Lombardo, leading young Timothy to sign lucrative seven-figure recording contracts. Indeed, much success followed. From 2006 to 2015, Timothy Llewellyn released a total of nine albums, all of which quickly went platinum. After his much-lauded musical career, Timothy branched out into acting and had several guest-starring roles in cable TV shows, eventually landing a nine-season sitcom titled Llewellyn about a group of pianists living in New York. In 2012, he starred in a Broadway musical about founding father John Adams, and in 2014, he composed the music for a major motion picture about his own life, starring none other than his cinematic hero, Nicolas Cage. Truth be told, everything Timothy Llewellyn did in life was a success. Critics loved him, and the public loved him even more. Each evening, he would scour the internet, reading the positive things the common folk had to say about him, and printing out his favorite comments and preserving them in scrapbooks that filled every bookshelf of every room in his five-story seaside home in Montenegro. Even to this day, if you can believe it, there has not been a single negative comment written about him on the internet. And although the events that took place at the Royal Albert Hall had become a distant memory in his later years, Timothy Llewellyn would occasionally find himself, while sitting by the fireplace or looking up at the stars at night, thinking back to that evening, and he would wonder out loud, I wonder who didn't like me. It was while skiing in Austria one winter that Timothy Llewellyn received the tragic news that his childhood friend Scott Peterson had passed away. He spent the rest of his trip reminiscing about all the great times they had spent together, until he suddenly remembered, to his utter shame, that he hadn't actually spoken to Scott since the night at the Royal Albert Hall. This made it even more surprising when Scott Peterson's estate lawyer showed up at the cabin one day to announce that Timothy had been named Scott's primary beneficiary in his will. In addition to the deceased's rather modest collection of vintage black licorice, Scott's lawyer informed him that he would be receiving Scott's most prized possession, the time machine. Timothy wasted no time thinking about all the things he could do with a machine of this sort, including, of course, using the machine to go back to the night in question to see who disliked him. However, he knew such an action would be considered much too vain and pathetic, and he quickly cast the thought aside. Instead, he kept the machine stored away in his private vacation lodge, where it sat gathering dust for many years. But as the years went by, as his body aged and the wrinkles on his face multiplied, the thought of a small trip to the past became increasingly tempting. What could it hurt, he asked himself one winter morning. Probably nothing, he concluded. And so, without further deliberation, a trip to the past was exactly what he took.
What people often forget about time machines is that they only bring you to different times, not to different locations. Timothy Llewellyn opened the door to find himself on top of the same snowy mountaintop as before, but this time his vacation lodge and all of his possessions were nowhere to be seen. Wearing nothing but a sweater and jeans, he made his way down the mountain towards the nearby town of Innsbruck as heavy winds and sleet pounded against his ears. He purchased a hat and coat from a street vendor before boarding the 11 o'clock train to Cologne, then caught the 3 o'clock train to London, entering the Royal Albert Hall just in time to catch the start of his performance. He felt a sudden mixture of nostalgia and eerie deja vu as he looked down at the stage from the balcony. There he was, a much younger Timothy Llewellyn playing Mozart's Piano Sonata No. 11, and quite immaculately too. He scanned the room to see if he could spot the mysterious hooded figure, but saw no trace of anyone behaving suspiciously. Who he did see, however, was his brother in the front row, and he suddenly remembered that it had been several years since they had spoken, which then reminded him that it had been several years since he had spoken to his parents. Where were they all now, he wondered. The last he heard was that his brother had moved into a nursing home and his parents were competing in Formula One racing. Or was it the other way around? Memories of his past came flooding back. He briefly thought about other relatives, about the ex-girlfriend Daisy that he had given up on, about Scott, his best friend, who, despite being a bit of an oddball, had actually helped him through several tough times in his life. He then remembered the grocer, the mailman, his friends at church, and then all the residents of the little town of Littletown, Iowa, who at one time cared about him, who helped raise him right. Where were they? And why didn't he keep up with them? He felt a twinge of heaviness when he realized that his life's drives to become something, to achieve his life's dreams, had made him miss out on all the lives he was once so close to. And as the Andante Grazioso, the Menuetto, the Alla Turca filled the air, Tim eventually stopped looking for the man with the snowball and simply stared at his younger self with deep regret. He realized in that moment that he now had everything in his life except for the people he had tried so desperately to run away from. Pass me that right stuff. Uh, here. Thanks. So, so the big trip's tomorrow, eh? No more farm life for you. Yeah, but don't worry, Dad. I'll come back to visit from time to time. Tim, are you sure this is what you want? Yeah, I think you guys will be proud of me. <laughs> proud of you? We'd be proud of you, whatever you did. <laughs> You know, your, your grandfather used to say to me, Son, at the end of your life, it won't matter one bit what others will have thought of you. It'll only matter what you'll have thought of yourself. Don't forget that, Tim. I don't worry, Dad. I won't. Tears streaming down his face, all that Timothy Llewellyn of Littletown, Iowa wanted at that moment were the people he had left behind. And as he felt something cold trickle down the back of his neck, and as he reached back and felt a pile of fresh snow in the hood of his coat, the truth dawned on him like a bolt of lightning. The truth that you, dear listener, have undoubtedly realized by now. Timothy Llewellyn was the mysterious snowball-throwing figure from that night. And as he scooped up the snow with his hands, forming it into a large sphere, he knew what he was going to do. Timothy Llewellyn was going to destroy young Timothy Llewellyn's future. 
But this time, one thing was certain. He wasn't going to miss. The Snowball Effect was written and produced by Ben Kempf. Our theme was composed by Garrett Vandenberg with additional tracks from SoundDogs.com and Pond5.com. Today's voice talents included Mark LaPointe, J.D. Sutter, Jared Weikert, Kaylee LaPointe, Ben Kempf, and Darby Kern. Thank you for joining us for a bit of time travel. See you next time.